Would you please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians and find your way to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a, is a letter. We uh, happen to have two letters, so we have a 1st and a 2nd Corinthians inside of our New Testament. There are other correspondences that are referenced inside of these two letters uh, between the Apostle Paul and this church in the ancient city of Corinth, hence it bears the name Corinthians. So Paul is in a regular communication with them, and there's various things going on in the life of their congregation, and the historic figure Paul is known as, as an apostle. He has particular authority. He's going around starting churches, checking in on churches and whatnot. Uh, he's an apostle, but he's also a pastor. He has a big heart for the people, and his heart is breaking because the people are going through various things. And so he writes these letters to uh, bring comfort to the people and also to challenge the people in uh, particular things that were going on in the life of that church. Corinth has a lot in common with the church in America. A lot of divides, a lot of confusion, a lot of dysfunction. And so Paul, as he writes these letters in particular, and as we read them and study them, we, we can find a lot of commonalities between the drama of the congregation in Corinth and the dramas that we face in North America in our churches today. Well, I, I want to take you to, to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm giving you some context here as we jump in. I'm taking you to this passage because last Sunday was Easter, and 1 Corinthians 15 is, is the great sort of Easter passage. It's where Paul is talking about the good news of the one who conquered the grave, the historic Jesus of Nazareth. He's alive, and he's, he's, he's on the move, and he conquered the grave, and he did that not to, to display his his power merely, but he did that to cover the sins of his people. And so on the cross, he pays for their sin. In the resurrection, he rises up, showing that that payment took. Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, draw your eyes at verse 1. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You see the challenge there. There's, there's comfort uh, uh, of the good news that has come. There's challenge. Do you really believe this? Did it re is it really taking root in your life, or did you just sort of accept it and believe it in vain? I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance, what I received, that Christ died for our sins. That is our comfort. There's one who has died for us. Be comforted in this according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, verse 4, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Kephas and then to the Twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom remain until now, and some have fallen asleep. Falling asleep is a euphemism for death. Uh, the others, of course, are alive. He's, he's referring to eyewitnesses. That also is a comfort. Be reminded that this happened. This is real history. This is not pie in the sky. We're not making it up. There's eyewitnesses walking around who can uh, corroborate and authenticate that the man from Nazareth who died on that cross was alive days later, and, and, and he gave proof that he was who he claimed to be, namely the eternal Son of God in the flesh, the Messiah of Israel. And so those who have fallen asleep, verse 6, those who have died in him, take comfort, for they are in him. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
He talks about these eyewitnesses. He includes himself as one who had seen the risen Lord. And he speaks of the risen Lord, the man, and also the message about this man. If Christ is preached, verse 12, right? He's talking about preaching Christ. There's this message about this man, and this message brings life. This message changes, uh, changes people. He appeals to his own life here. Verse 9, the least of the apostles. He talks about his life prior to encountering the Christ. If Christ is preached and he has been raised from the dead, verse 12. I got a question for you, verse 12. How is it that some of you are saying there's no resurrection of the dead? You see, there, some, some false ideas had swept in to the Corinthian church. And as I said, he writes to comfort, but he also writes to challenge or confront I've heard that there are some that are denying resurrection. What, what are you talking about? Now, understand that in, in the ancient world, there are all sorts of ideas that are floating around. And generally speaking, in the Greco-Roman Empire, there is a, 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 a kind of a contrasting sort of a dualism that exists in terms of ideas at the time where the idea of a physical resurrection was sort of frowned upon. Uh, we want to escape our bodies. We want to escape this physical earth. We want to just like go to heaven and be spirits floating around and see the gods, you know, Zeus and Aphrodite and all those, those gods of the day. And so there was this sort of physical stuff is bad, spiritual stuff is good kind of dichotomy. However, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish Messiah, the apostles, this, this book is proclaiming a God who rescues the physical universe. Proclaiming a, a, a God who created the physical universe to be good. Matter is good. Physical stuff is good. Death is a separation of, of, our, of our spirit, our soul, from the biological body. That's not good. That's bad. We weren't intended to be separated from this. We were intended to be in the earth. As we see in the book of Genesis, when God creates, he walks through the cool of the garden. There he is. But we rebelled, humanity did, against the giver of life, and as a result, death has come. And death is just that, it's a separation. And so our, 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 bodies, our bodies give out. They have a termination date on them. They give, they give out, they don't last. We see death, we see disease, we see decay. That, that's just in biology and chemistry. In terms of sociology and relationships, we see dysfunction. It all goes back to humanity rebelling against the one who gave order, so that relationships would flourish and thrive and societies would flourish and thrive, who gave life so that our bodies would live on. So then, this one creator God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Spirit has come in his grace to restore the creation. And he has promised that he would send one who would conquer the grave, who would rise up in resurrection and would raise his people up. So the Greco-Roman concept of the day of matter being bad was really bucking against this, this teaching from sacred scripture, as well for those in the Jewish community who were raised in this sacred scripture, who are aware of the prophetic hope of a resurrection. There was some confusion with regard to how is the Messiah risen from the dead, but nobody else was. We thought that was going to happen at the same time. We thought he was going to bring a kingdom and he was going to raise the dead and he was going to restore creation and create world peace and all this good stuff. When's that supposed to happen? And so the writings of the New Testament are juggling this explanation theologically to explain the coming of the Messiah is going to be in two stages. He has come to be the suffering servant to die on the cross. 
and he will return and he will raise the dead. How is it that some of you are saying there is no resurrection? You, you, you must be confused. The Greco-Roman ideas of the day must have gotten in your heads or you don't understand the, the two stages of the coming of the Messiah. So let me unpack this for you. Let me, let me tell you about this. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our, our preaching is in, in vain and your faith is as well. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. They're not arguing that Jesus isn't raised. They, they get that, but they're wondering about the last days and when the resurrection is going to come and, and what all that entails. Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And, and, and if we have hoped in Christ in this life, we are of all men most to be pitied. If, if this didn't really happen, if this isn't really our hope, then what on earth are we doing? Understand the early Christians were persecuted for this. Uh, nowadays, you'll hear skeptics try to dismiss the Bible, and they'll say things like, oh, you know, history is written by the winners, and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, yeah, we were the losers for hundreds of years. We're getting killed for this. We're of all men most to be pitied, Paul says. We're giving our lives for this. We saw this happen, and we are giving our lives for this. We're not getting record deals. We're not getting awards. We're not getting fanfare. We're losing everything for this. So if, if you guys think there's not going to be a resurrection, then all of this, all of this is for naught. But now, verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that's our comfort. Christ has been raised from the dead. So if he was raised, that shows you there will be a resurrection. Look at what he says in verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man, verse 21, came death, and by a man came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Humanity rebelled against God. Adam, the father of humanity, rebelled against God. Death came. And in the same way that, you know, your genetic code passes down, there is a, a spiritual code that passes down. Adam becomes uh, depraved. He becomes a sinner. He, he has death now in his body and sin in his soul, and that passes on. You know, you look at your kids and you go, oh, man, they look like me. Uh, you know, I look at, look at my, my dad. Yeah, I get that male pattern baldness from, from that guy, you know, and it just passes down. And, uh, you know, my biological kids, uh, there's hope for the adopted ones, but the biological kids, you know, they might get that baldness. Uh, Got to be careful telling bald jokes today, though. But uh, in any case, it, it, it passes down, doesn't it? Well, there's something that passes down called sin. And in Adam, that sin has come and we all die. But now there's one who has come who's reversed it. He's a son of Adam. He's a son of Abram. He's the son of David. And he has reversed it. He who had no sin, though he is a seed of Adam, stands in our place and takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness so that now the children of Adam are being restored. And, and, and in his resurrection, he's giving us the first glimpse of the new creation. Look again at verse 22. In Adam all die, in Christ all will be made alive, but each in this order. Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. 
Now, verse 20 and verse 23, he's spoken of Christ as first fruits. He's getting eschatological. He's talking about Christ coming back. Remember, there's confusion. We thought Messiah was going to come, overthrow Rome, you know, punk Pontius Pilate, you know, rebuke Herod, and, uh, you know, or chop his head off the way he did John, you know, and we're going to restore order, and, and we're going to have peace, and everything's going to be great, and the dead are going to be raised, and the creation's going to start to renew the trees aren't going to be decaying. Our bodies won't be decaying. God, who created this world, who sustains this world, is now going to rejuvenate it so stuff doesn't die anymore. How cool is that? Well, when is that? Well, Messiah came, part one, to do that sacrifice act. Part two, he comes to restore. And so you need to understand these phases if you are to understand what's going on in world history. And the apostles, they explained that this in-between time, the reason for it is God's patience. It's God's patience. He's, he's, he's gracious to his creation. We continue to rebel against him, but he responds to us with, with patience, wishing that none would perish and all would come to him. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful that he's waited to, to this point, at least, because now I get to be a part of the story, and, and, and I'm praying that my children and my children's children and and the rest that in God's patience they come to know him and worship him and be there on that day when he comes. And he raises the dead and he restores the creation. Christ is, in this text, called the first fruits. Now in today's message what I want to do is I want to unpack this symbol of first fruits. And I'm going to take you into the uh, Hebrew Bible and I want to give you really just a crash course in the Hebrew Bible on what first fruits means because this was a significant term that is applied to Christ here as, as Paul's trying to clarify some things and, and preach the gospel to them. Now, you have a, the first point on your outline there, symbols. What are symbols? Symbols are things that represent or stand for something else. Symbols are a picture to unpack a literal thing. In Scripture, there are many symbols for Jesus. In fact, on your outline, you have John 6, John 9, John 10, John 15. Uh, some examples of some symbols that are used of Christ. In John 6, he's called the bread of life. In John 9, 5, he's called the light. In John 10, 9, he's called the door. In John 15, he's called the true vine. We don't think Jesus is a plant or a door or a light or a piece of bread. Those are just symbols. They're, they're standing for something. And so too, Paul, with 1 Corinthians in front of you, he's calling Jesus a fruit, the first fruit. What does he mean? Does he think he's a, you know, a... Uh, some, a harvest or something like what's going on here well we want to understand the symbol in fact the early followers of Jesus we call it Easter today or Resurrection Sunday they called Easter first fruits that's what it was it was first fruits and they celebrated it as the first fruits and so I, I you know on the Sunday after Easter the the Bible teacher and me I'm like I hope I hope my people know about the first fruits there's only so much you can do in an Easter sermon, and I always cram more than is needed anyway. So, but I hope, I hope they know about the first fruits. So following Easter, I, I want to unpack the symbol of Jesus as the first fruits. Easter as first fruits. The symbol of first fruits in the original language of the Bible is known as bikurim. Bikurim is the big Hebrew word that gets used for it. Another Hebrew term that gets used is reshit. Reshit and bikurim are the two. Uh, terms that we find inside of the Hebrew Bible that get translated into two words, first fruits. In the Greek New Testament, we have the word eparche. Eparche, uh, we translate that into English, and it's a great translation, first fruits. Well, what, 
does this term eparche, bikurim, reshit, what do these terms mean? Uh, and, and what is this thing that we've translated as first fruits mean? And how does it relate as a metaphor to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Well, understanding symbols, then we are going to move into our outline. And I'm going to give you various points using an S alliteration to try and help you remember these things to unpack the symbol of the first fruits while Easter is fresh in our hearts and our minds. So then let's, let's move into the sacred writings of Moses. You can keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians. I'll be throwing uh, uh, quotes in front of us on the overhead here. And we're going to talk about the first fruits as a symbol of sacrifice. Bikurim, reshit. Now, what is a first fruit? A first fruit is a sample of a grown crop or a produced thing. For example, when a farmer plants strawberries and the vine begins to grow and the strawberries come in and then the farmer waits for the perfect moment to pick. And, and, and the farmer knows from experience. The farmer knows when, it, when it's time. I have Jerry Rush in the front here. She has an amazing garden in the back. She's always taking Trader Joe's stuff and making more stuff out of it. And you go in her backyard and she just, she just knows. She knows. She can look at that tomato and say next week, you know, or, or boom, here you go right now, try it. And you're like, wow, you, you have a green thumb. You are good at this. Well, a farmer knows from this kind of experience. You, you know when you want to take a, a, a little test. You, 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 want, you go, I think it's time. You take a little test and you pick it and you taste it. You can, you can tell, yeah, yeah, now is the time. Now is the time for this crop. We, we need to be eating this, sharing this, selling this, preserving this, canning this. But wait. Before you start eating and selling and sharing and making your jams and whatnot, before you do that, for God's people, you got to wait. For God's people, you got to worship. For God's people, you take a piece of that, that strawberry and you don't pop it in your mouth, you save it. The first fruits belong to God. Before you eat, before you share, before you sell, before you preserve, you worship. You stop before you eat. We have the practice of, you know, the tradition of praying before we eat. You, you pause and you, you acknowledge the Lord. You acknowledge the Lord. And sometimes you might even uh, stop to eat and begin to pray. And you, you might even experience like, you know what, let me just fast. Let me just put this food away. Let me just give my attention to the Lord. He's more important than the grumblings in my stomach right now. I want to I honor him by laying this aside, putting it back in the fridge. I'll microwave it later. I, I want to I take some time to, to show him, to tell him that he's more important than me having this meal that I wanted to eat. As, as, as it's a horticultural society, that's how they survive plants, produce. And you come and you, oh, I want this right now. Oh, it's so fresh. Oh, we could take it to the market. We could make some money with this. You posture yourself before God and you say, but we're not going to do this. The act was to be done at the tabernacle of God, and later when the temple was built, a worshiper would bring the first fruits there and would bring them to the priest, and they would have a ritual of first fruits. The priest would take a sheaf of first fruits to the temple. Here's a picture of a sheaf. A sheaf is a bundle of grain uh, stalks that are laid lengthways and are tied together for reaping. On Yom Ha Nafaret Ha Omer, the day of the, the weave uh, of the wave of the, the, the sheaf offering. This would be waved by the priest. You can read about this in Leviticus 2, verse 14 and 15. The ritual would happen on the day after the weekly Shabbat or Sabbath in which Passover falls. Now, let, let's talk some more about first fruits. So it's the first produce of a crop. I use strawberries as an illustration. 
Oh, what sorts of things were they growing in ancient Israel? Well, vegetables and fruits in general. In Numbers chapter 13, verse 20, it specifies grapes being brought as bikurim. Figs in Nahum 3.12 are bikurim. Uh, the first ripened fruits of vegetables, all, you know, vegetables in general, bikurim. Additionally, the first harvest of grain-producing plants like wheat. Wheat would be, grain would be bikurim. As well, when you produced it to make dough, when you're making flour, when you're making bread, and that bread is all tasty, and it's coming right out, and it's all hot, and you, oh, yes, I want that bread. It tastes so good. Those garlic knots at CNO, you know, and they come out, and you, you can eat like, you could go crazy on those things. They're, right when they come out, they're, oh, that's the time to taste it. Nope. You wait. Even your dough, that fresh loaf that you made, you're supposed to offer the first to the Lord. That's bikurim. That's an act of worship. Don't pop that garlic knot in your mouth as much as you, you take that and you go to the temple with that and then you come back to see nose and you get your grub on, okay? So grain, bread, fruit, vegetables, the first of what comes in the ground and the first of what you make of it, like bread, bikurim. Additionally, we see in scripture that uh, staples to their diet were also bikurim. So oil is offered in this sacrifice. Honey is offered in this sacrifice. New wine is offered in this sacrifice. If you're aging grapes through the fermentation process and, and you have a new vat of wine, before you start sipping, you be, you don't, don't be tripping. Take it to the temple and bikurim that new wine, that oil, that honey. Finally, we read in Deuteronomy 18.4 that there was a bikurim even of the clothing that they produced. And I quote, you shall give the first fruits of the first shearing of your sheep. So that which they use for making clothes, you're supposed to offer that. So then what we put on our body, what we put in our body, we should reckon as a gift from God and a thing to give to God in acknowledgement of that. Additionally, to what goes into one's body, there is also what comes from my body, namely offspring, okay? Uh, specifically, uh, you, you have your firstborn child. The firstborn child in the family is, is designated as a part of Bikurim. Under the law of Moses, the people in all of the tribes of Israel, save for the tribe of Levi, which was the tribe from which the priests would come, they were to recognize their firstborn son as a first fruit. And, and, and in that, they would acknowledge before God that, uh, that this is a first fruit. This is Bikurim. This son is Bikurim. This was acknowledged through a ritual act of symbolizing redemption. The parents would come before the Lord. Let me put Exodus 13 in front of you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel. It belongs to me. So there's an act of your firstborn child. Now, unlike uh, some oil, some wine, some dough, some, you know, some berries or whatever, something is done differently with the firstborn. You don't take your firstborn child and just give them to the priest and see you, you know, at the next holiday or whatever. You, you don't leave them there the way that you would leave the grain. Incidentally, the bikurim, the, the, the fruit, the bread, the vegetables, the bikurim would be used for the, to feed the priests. That's how they survive. It's very similar today when we give in charity as a church. We use that for our ministers to be able to feed their families. The bikurim was for their ministers to feed their families. As well, the bikurim was used to take care of those who, who didn't have. 
And so it was a social welfare system for feeding the poor. The bikurim would be used to, to feed the poor that way. But notice the difference here with the firstborn son. There is a ritual act of symbolizing redemption that takes place. Uh, let me talk about this, because we hear the word redemption, and often we think of something spiritual. Redemption, that sounds really spiritual. But the term redemption, historically, uh, should conjure up the idea of abolition, thinking of slaves. When slaves were purchased out of the slave market, when, when you had a benefactor who, who, who would purchase a slave out of the slave market, what we call manumission, that is redemption. The releasing of a slave to freedom, that, the, to buy one out of slavery, that, that's what's called redemption. Mind you that in the biblical world, this, uh, slavery wasn't like the transatlantic slave trade. It wasn't race-based. It wasn't for life. It was merely a system of debt bondage where I owe you money, I can't pay it off, and now I have to work for you. But if someone pays it off for you, setting you free from that debt, we call that redemption. All of that said, in the ritual act where the parents bring their firstborn son, they would come and say, here's my firstborn, and then they would offer a sum of money, not to exceed five shekels, as an act of symbolizing manumission. So they didn't leave the kid there, but they come with the kid, and then they come with a payment which reminded Israel, follow me, of their redemption from bondage to slavery in Egypt and God's underground railroad of salvation when he brought the people out and he rescued them from that. That's the picture of redemption, exodus, slavery, coming out. So you bring your firstborn, and, you, and you're reminded of this. Look at Exodus 13. I'll put it in front of you. Now, when the Lord brings you to the land of, of, of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, every firstborn you shall redeem. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this? Then you say to your son, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the house of slavery. Redemption. God redeemed us. God rescued us. He's the great abolitionist. He manumitted our, our people. He brought us to this land that we didn't deserve. He gave us this, this great gift. The ritual was to remind the people and to teach the next generation of their redemption and their bondage in Egypt. It's catechesis. You're catechizing the kids. You're teaching them what happened because if you don't teach them, the next generation is going to walk away from it. What one generation assumes, the next generation is, to, is going to forget, and the next generation is going to fight against it. And you look at the state of many nations that were once robustly in the faith, and you see where they've gone. There's this breakdown, because you're not passing it down. You're not taking the time to teach your children the things of the Lord. The ritual reminds the children of the things of the Lord as well. It reminds God's people of all ages, young and old, of his covenantal faithfulness to his promise to save a people for himself. The firstborn offering is an act of worship, a reminder of what happened in Egypt and how, how powerful God is. Look, look at the powerful hand of the Lord, Exodus 13. Look here at Numbers chapter 3, verse 13. The firstborn are mine. On that day I struck down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel from Man to beast, they shall be mine, for I am the Lord. The ritual act of the firstborn offering, reminding us here of this great exodus, and it's also reminding us here of our birth and sin. As I, as I showed you in Corinthians, in Adam all die. We are, we are born sinners in him, a part of this rebellion against God. He's our federal head. He pushed the war button against God. 
now we're all in this horrible situation where we need to be redeemed, we need to be rescued out of slavery to sin. The debt of sin enslaves humanity. The hope of the ancients in the Hebrew Bible was that there would be one who would come who would rescue them from this enslavement to sin. The one who the prophets would say would suffer for them, would come and would be crushed in their place, Isaiah says, giving his life and, 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 and in the place of the death that we deserve. Because we owe this, this debt unto this holy God. But this holy God in His grace has promised that He would send one who would rescue us from this. And behold, the one who has come, the historical Jesus of Nazareth, the one of the promise. He, he, he did not owe any debt, but we owed a debt that we could not pay. And so He gave that for us in His grace. Now speaking of death, speaking of the one who was to come, speaking of firstborn symbols, speaking of first fruit symbols. Uh, uh, all of these are given by, by God to the people of Israel in the law of Moses in the Hebrew Bible. And speaking of the law of Moses, the holy law also called for the first fruits of the firstborn of the animals, not just of your children, but of the animals as well. Now, while in our culture, not everyone has animals in their homes, in the ancient world, or if you're like me, I got an animal, but it stays in the backyard. Uh, not everyone has animals in the home, but in the ancient world, it was very, 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 very common. In fact, it was, it was necessary to have animals in your homes, not just as pets, but as protectors and as producers. Uh, you had animals for production. They gave you food. They gave you milk. They gave you financial standing, something to trade for, for money. They don't have a, a commerce system. They don't have ATMs. They don't, certainly didn't have Venmo and all this stuff. This kind of, they didn't have Bitcoin. They didn't have all this, all this E stuff. You know, it was like, hey, I need to like, get some food for my family. What am I going to do? I'll probably have to trade one of my animals uh, to, to get that food for my family. Or we'll have to eat one of the animals, and that'll be our food for the family. You, you had animals as a part of making money selling things like milk or making cheese and, and whatnot. That was a part of the economy at the time. So that said, just as the first fruits of the plant kingdom, so too you have to give up the first fruits of the animal kingdom. And those, that's a hard sacrifice. Unlike the human kingdom, families would not offer a sum of money of five shekels. Instead, they would offer the firstborn animal, the whole animal. And that animal would be sacrificed on the altar of the temple. Look at this passage here, Numbers 18. Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord, shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem, because you can't sacrifice an unclean animal, as the redemption price. Five shekels, look at verse 16, in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Verse 17, for the firstborn of the ox and the firstborn of the sheep and the firstborn of the goat you shall not redeem, they are holy. So you shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and you shall offer up the, the fat and the smoke as an offering by fire for a soothing aroma unto the Lord. Now, we as moderns can read that and go, soothing aroma, what are you talking about? That's weird. It's not weird. You go to barbecues. You know, I drive down, there's a barbecue spot on Sentinella. I drive down and I can just smell it through, through my air conditioning. It's a, that is a soothing aroma that I smell. Uh, soothing. Uh, it's, it's wondrous. What do you, what do you, and, and so you understand that. You go, I would like to eat that, but I am giving it to God. 
And because I'm giving it to God, I'm taking a hit. My kids don't get to eat it. I don't get to sell it. I, I can't produce something from this. I'm taking a hit. Why does God want you to take a hit? Well, that's what worship is. Worship is ascribing value to something. If you ever work in retail and you go around with the sticker gun, and you, put, you put a price on stuff, don't you? That's called worship. You put a price on something. You say, this is worth this much. And then when you go to the store and you look at it, you go, I like that. And you do the mental math of like how many hours it took me to work to buy this or whatever. And you, and you say, is it worth it, the price? Well, yeah. And then you make the payment. So too, in our worship, it, it costs us something. So, some of you could be at work this morning and you're not. And so you're taking a hit. Uh, some of you came today and you, you've written out checks and you're going to make donations in this worship service. And, and, and you're, you're not going to give God your sloppy seconds. You're going to give Him your first because you see this principle in, in the Word and you go, oh, He wants me to give from my firsts. And in so doing that, it affects you. You take a hit. I was going to take the kids out to eat after church today, but I put something in the offering. I think we're going to have, uh, we're going to have sandwiches. <laughs> you know, because... I, I worshipped. I, I, I took a hit in my worship here. I, I made this price, this soothing aroma. Now, notice here in Numbers 18, you see the redemption price given for the firstborn. The price is paid. The payment is received. And the ancients, uh, seeing this, then are given these shadows, these shadows, these types, these symbols of the Son of God who would come, who would be called the firstborn. Not because he was born, he's eternal, he doesn't have a birth date, let alone a termination date, but he would be called the firstborn, the, the firstborn, because the firstborn was the one who was offered who would redeem the people. He would come and he would do this. He would pay the price to redeem. The redemption payment was the innocent life of the Lamb of God, the Son of God in the flesh. And, 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 and that, that payment was received. And so, Paul, if you still have 1 Corinthians open, and you look at verse 20, the first fruits, Christ, verse 23, the first fruits. I'm giving you this background so that now when you read 1 Corinthians 15, you see him called the first fruits. You think the firstborn and the first fruits and, and the law, and, and, and you begin to really appreciate this symbol that Paul uses. Notice here in Numbers, the language of clean and unclean in Numbers 18 in front of us. There's a cleansing that takes place. Existentially, you know this in in sin, what do we experience? We experience a feeling of being unclean, don't we? There's a guilt. I shouldn't have done that. There's a, there's a guilt with it. I feel unclean. I, I want to be washed. As the psalmist would say, create in me a clean heart, O God. Clean, cleanse me of my sin. And so sin is given this symbol of, of, of filth. It makes you dirty. And the clean one comes and, and cleanses that. So in the animal kingdom, in the law of Moses, there's this idea of some animals are clean and some animals aren't clean. And, and it's teaching the people that there's a separation between the two and that you need cleansing because we've been defiled, we've been unclean, and so we need one to cleanse us. And so the law is filled with all the, that's clean, that's not clean, this is clean, that's not clean. Go back to the Garden of Eden. That tree, unclean. Don't eat it. Now, is there anything you know, inherently or ontologically wrong with the tree or wrong with this animal or wrong with this thing? 
No, the law is creating this and showing, look, look, part of worship is obedience. God says, don't do that. And you say, okay, he who loves me obeys me, the scriptures say. And, and we understand that, right? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm loyal to my wife. I love my wife. I, I wouldn't disobey our marriage covenant, covenant and, and, and soil that love and ruin, bring that ruin. And yet that happens. People are unfaithful, and they, 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 they hurt each other, and they do horrible things. And we all do, and we all have that sense. And we say, God, I, I need you to rescue me. So the law of Moses is given to the people to begin teaching them there's going to be one who's going to come. In the meantime, obey my law. I'm teaching you something. I'm pointing you forward to something. So that when the Christ comes, he can point backward and say, when Moses was talking about that, that was me. When Moses was talking about that, that was me. And so the writings of the New Testament, the Berit Hadashah, look back and say, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's God's grace, that's God's grace. The exodus, that deliverance. Christ is a, is a, is a new exodus. He's, he, he's opened a new underground railroad, and he's rescuing us from slavery to sin. In Exodus 13, we see, I'll put it in front of you. In Exodus 13, we see, you see here kosher animals being offered and unkosher animals that are redeemed. So the donkey is unclean, and the lamb, which is clean, redeems the donkey. We just had Palm Sunday. Remember the images in Palm Sunday? The Lamb of God who rides the donkey into the holy city to become the sacrifice, to redeem the people. The more you know your Hebrew Bible, the more you pick up the New Testament and you go, this is telling the same story. This is the same story. That's Exodus 13. Let me put Exodus 34 in front of you. The first uh, offspring of every womb belongs to me and all your male livestock and the first offspring of the cattle and the sheep. You shall redeem a lamb, the first of the offspring from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, you break its neck. You'll redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Worship costs something. Now, as, as believers, we understand that salvation isn't something that you can pay to earn. Because the law of God presumes our obedience. So you can't obey the law to, to, to rescue yourself from the wrath of the law. I use the illustration all the time in the church, right? You can't, I can't kill someone and stand before the judge and appeal to all the times I didn't kill people so as to level the playing field. Your Honor, it was but one time that I murdered a man. Think of all these other people I've loved so dearly. And the judge goes, you know, you make a good point. Your goodness outweighs your badness. You shall go free. No, we would say that's injustice. Because the law presumes obedience. We can't come to God and give money or volunteer or, or be holy or go through some rigmarole ritual, penance system, say some Hail Marys or whatever goofy things traditions have developed and think that we somehow are justifying ourselves and making ourselves cleanse before God. We need a substitute. We need a lamb. The donkey needs a lamb. The firstborn needs a payment. Paul, proclaiming the gospel, is saying, first fruits, he's that payment. And all Jewish people went, oh, man, that was, that was an amazing symbol, Paul. That was so enriching. Speaking of the appearing, the people, uh, they would appear in, in the temple, as has already been noted. 
you shall not appear before me empty-handed. So the appearing here, I want to make sure you understand, is in the temple. Uh, they would go to the temple with this, and there were three, three pilgrimage holidays uh, where they specifically would engage in this. And I'll, I'll put this in front of you and, and note the ones that are highlighted in the red. The ones highlighted in the red are what are known as Shalash Relagim. They're the pilgrimage festivals where you pack your family up and you go to the temple. Now this is sacrifice again. I got work to do. I got things to do. I got to pack my whole family up and go all the way to the temple. They don't have cars. They don't, you know, I got I to gotta do all of that. I got to go all the way down there for Pesah, Passover, for Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, for Sukkot, a.k.a. tabernacles, tents, or booths. You bring Bikurim. It's Pesah time. It's Shavuot time. It's Sukkot time. We're going to bring some Bikurim. And so, so we go in our gardens, and we get the best. We fill up a basket. We go in our backyards, and I really wanted to eat that, but okay, come on. Uh, bring that too. And then we journey. Take, could take us a week. Could take us two weeks. We got to get there, and we're losing work. We're losing time. We're, we're giving of our stuff because we don't want to appear in the temple before the Lord and all that he has done for us. He gave us this land. He rescued us. He forgives us. And, and, and we keep on making mistakes, but He's merciful and He keeps covering us. And we, 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 we keep on, we keep on uh, this guilt and, and He keeps on loving us. Of course I'm going to come and I'm going to bring this and we're going to sacrifice and we're going we're to miss work. We're going to miss whatever. Our kids need to know how good our God is. So, so, so the lesson here with this point of sacrifice is that you can write this in on your outline? Israel's offering first fruits in covenant and in a sacrificial rhythm. The rhythms of the annual pilgrimages are these vivid reminders of what God has done. The law of God gave the people instructions for the land, for the produce. You're making a tithe off of that produce. Uh, understanding that the vegetation in the land of Israel, as you're tithing that, as you're giving the first fruits, you're saying, all of it belongs to you, God. Thank you for letting us have the 90, because it all belongs to you. And, and in addition to the tithe, in, Israel was instructed to leave uh, on the borders of their vegetation, not to take from that, because that was to be a bikurim to the poor. So, so they cared for the poor, because it's a horticultural society, and God says, you cannot take all the fruits off your tree. The first ones you bring to me, the ones on the outside, you leave for the poor, so they have something to eat. The pilgrims come to the temple with the bikurim. They have an organized procession. They would play flutes. They would sing songs. They would read scriptures. They would chant as they get closer to the temple. They would chant a, a declaration that is known as the aval, uh, and it's a, it, it involves reciting Deuteronomy 26. So let me put that in front of you. It shall be when you enter the land, the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of the produce on the ground and you'll bring it, that the Lord your God gives you, and you'll put it in a basket, you'll go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name, that's the temple, and you'll go to the priest, verse 3, verse 4, the priest will take the basket, and then if you look at verse 5, 6, 7, 8, it rehearses the Exodus story. Verse 10, now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Lord, have given to me, and you, you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship the Lord your God. 
Look at verse 12. You shall give it to the Levite. You shall give it to the stranger, to the orphan, to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Verse 13, you shall say before the Lord your God, I've removed the sacred portion from my house, and I've also given to the Levite and to the alien, the orphan, the widow, according to your commandments. Notice the heart of the law for immigrants, aliens, for the orphan, for the widow, for the weak. Pure religion, James tells us, cares for what? Widows and orphans in their distress. This does away with this superficial kind of religion where, yeah, praise God, you know, and all the jokes for people who work in restaurants, oh no, the church crowd is coming, church is let out, and they don't tip, and they're mean, and they go caring, and they're not caring, and they're cantankerous and whatnot. Uh, how often do we hear, right, that, you know, oh, Christians, oh, they're a bunch of hypocrites, or they... They don't care for the poor or the weak. The people gave their first fruits to God and to their fellow man. And if we are honest, this is quite the challenge, for we are prone not to give out of our first, but we are prone to give after what is left. I'm prone to go, okay, well, Uncle Sam took that. Well, you know, you know. I'm, I'm prone to give Uncle Sam my first and not God. The first fruits are the best. In their culture, that, that, I mean, that's the taste right there, right? The first... The firstborn is the heir of the estate. The firstborn is given the title of the heir, and the heir was the one that was acknowledged in that rite of redemption that we saw in Scripture. It's, it's showing us God's proper place in our lives as the first. And it's showing us the ethic of Scripture, to quote Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, to regard others as more important than ourselves. I will say this for the weak, for the immigrant, for the orphan, for the widow. I will bring this to my God and I'll live off of what is left. In the law of Moses, God gave his people this ethic. Mind you, they were in the wilderness at the time, so he was preparing them for life in the land. He's preparing them in advance to live in the land and not soil the land by unclean living. We read in 2 Chronicles, after they get in the land, of, of rebellions and them rebelling against God and, and collapsing into idolatry. In 2 Chronicles 31, there's a great revival that takes place. You can Read it this week. David's dynasty is divided. The nation is struggling. In 2 Chronicles, we read of a great revival that comes. A great revival that comes, and Hezekiah reopens the, the, the temple, and they come clean with God, and revivals begin to break out. And we see in 2 Chronicles 31, verse 5, look at this. The sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of the grain, new wine, oil, honey, the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of all. They repent. They, they turn from living for themselves to living for God. They acknowledge their need. God, we, we've been in rebellion, and we haven't been doing this. And so they, they, they come, and they come, and they worship. That said, well, let's move back now to 1 Corinthians 15. We understand that this is a picture of sacrifice. This symbol of the first fruits is a picture of sacrifice. And now we come to the Savior. Look again at the text, verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man came resurrection. And Adam all die, and Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, but in each is order, Christ the first fruits, and after that those who are at Christ's coming. The feast of the first fruits was a type and a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus. Easter. Remember again what the first fruits are. They are a taste of a harvest. John chapter 12, Jesus spoke of himself and his death with the imagery of harvest and first fruits. Look at this, John 12, 23, Jesus answered, said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls 
into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Recall the sheaf, the bundle of grain, the picture that I showed you on, on Yom HaNafaret HaOmer, the day of the wave of the sheaf offering. The, the sheaf is, is waved and the seeds go to the ground and the good seeds, they bear that fruit. Scholars note, and I quote, that this ritual would happen on the day after the weekly Shabbat in which Passover falls. Scholars date Jesus' resurrection to have occurred on the 16th of Nisan, which is the day on which the sheaf was offered before the Lord in the temple. And based on Matthew 27, verse 51, we know that the temple veil was torn into miraculously, so you can imagine the priest there waving the sheaf of the first fruits in front of the torn veil, just as the temple was emptied of the presence of God, so too the tomb was emptied of Jesus' body. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And we remember what those first fruits are. They are a taste of the harvest. What is the harvest? Look around the room. This is the harvest, y'all. This is the harvest. He was the first, and he's making us his harvest. Christ's resurrection, for note-taking purposes, is a soteriological, eschatological first fruits. Soteriology deals with being saved. Eschatology deals with the end times when he comes back. Along with the first fruit language, the firstborn language applies to Jesus. Look at these passages. Romans 8:29, Colossians 1:15, Colossians 1:18, Hebrews 1:6. Recall that I told you the firstborn is the title, the heir of the state. It is a a title of honor that is given to one in a family lineage who is granted preeminence in the rights of inheritance. I, I emphasize this again because there are cults that want to say Jesus is created. Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, etc., and on down the line that want to deny that God's Father, Son, and Spirit want to deny that the eternal Son became a man. And, and they, will, they will pray ignorantly on those who have not been taught the Word of God so that when, when they see the word born, they think brought into existence and not the Hebrew understanding of this position of honor and title. Uh, Dr. Clint Arnold notes that it would be wrong to think in physical terms here as if Paul were asserting that the Son had a physical origin or was somehow created, the classic Arian heresy. Rather than existing eternally as the Son with the Father, the Holy Spirit, in the Godhead, what Paul uh, had in mind was the rights and the privileges of a firstborn son, especially the son of the monarch who, who, who would inherit ruling sovereignty. This is the expression and how it is used of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth, in Psalm 89, verse 27. Speaking of Psalm 89, verse 27, in the Greek Septuagint, when you read that verse in the Greek, it says, God will appoint David as his firstborn, the position of honor and preeminence, likewise the position of covenant. And, and that gets applied, that same language gets applied to Christ, who's the seed of David, who is atoning for his people. The, the, the picture of firstfruits, then, you see, of the Savior, has this soteriology, this eschatology. It also points, next point on your outline, to the Spirit. What happens at the end of the Gospel accounts, the beginning of the book of Acts? Jesus says, I'm going to go, I'm going to send another, the Spirit. He says, wait in Jerusalem for him to come. And he comes. What day does he come on? Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Shavuot. What do you do on Shavuot? Bikurim. First fruits. So some seven weeks after his resurrection around Passover time, there comes Pentecost, when according to Exodus 34, 22, the first fruits of the wheat harvest were presented at the temple. Numbers 28, 26. With this in mind, we, 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 we see in the book of Romans the, this kind of language that gets picked up 
for the Spirit to teach us that the pouring of the Spirit on the church in this age is a pneumatological, that's a fancy word for talking about the Holy Spirit, first fruits. Romans chapter 8, let me put this in front of you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, the creation will be set free from slavery to corruption and freedom for the glory of the children of God. That's Exodus talk. For now the whole creation groans, verse 22, and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within, waiting eagerly our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What does this mean? Well, Paul uses the symbol of the first fruits to describe not only the resurrection, but sanctification. I mentioned to you, look around the room, you see the first fruits. I mentioned to you that bread was a part of the first fruits. It's interesting that in Romans 11:16, Paul uses the imagery of a piece of dough that is holy. Dough expands, dough rises. In Romans 11, Paul uses the imagery to speak of salvation and election and God's work among his people, bringing a harvest among his people. He's changing us. He's transforming us by the Spirit that shows us a taste of what is to come. Just as that seed turns into a vine and grows that fruit, it's being transformed and you see it coming. We are in our souls deep within experiencing something that is pointing us to something else, namely the resurrection. He's beginning a work in our hearts. He's beginning a work in our lives. He's beginning a work in our church. He's beginning a work in society. And all of that is showing us and pointing us to his final redemption. And so it's a challenge for us to reflect, am I changing? Do I feel like I'm being transformed? Last Sunday, did I come in this Sunday the same? Am I, am, I, am I hearing the word and being changed by God's word? Am I seeking after him? We read Psalm 73 at the beginning of, of, of service. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that, do I have that creation groaning within? He speaks of a glory that is to come. He speaks of a transformation that is happening right now within us that's pointing us to this ultimate transformation that is to come. With Romans 8 in front of us, I would be remiss not to mention Romans 12, where Paul speaks of the inner transformation inside of us as metamorphosis. He uses the word metamorphosis. That's a change in the nature of a thing that becomes a completely different thing. Think of a caterpillar to a butterfly. You go, wow, yeah, God's, God's transforming us. This is the overflow, next point on your outline, of our salvation. Hopefully you still have 1 Corinthians open. If you turn from chapter 15 over to chapter 16, and you find your way into verse 13, Paul says, be on alert, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on alert, stand firm in your faith, act like men, be strong, let all you do this in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas. Look at this. They were the first fruits of Achaia. And they've devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Their, their lives are being changed. They've devoted themselves. See the farmer, our Savior, the farmer, tilling the soil. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus spoke of the, of the harvest. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but, but, but the workers are few. What is happening in our hearts, what's happening in salvation, this is, this is all a part of this kind of horticultural imagery to explain this to us. 
James chapter 1, do not be deceived. Look at this text. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he is brought forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Uh, one, one theologian uh, who's, who's uh, been quite influ influential in my own thinking, Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer, he writes, Christ alone is the first fruits in heaven. James, however, declared of his own will begat he us the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits over his creatures this declaration recognizes both the sovereign election of god for it is by his will that he was directed and the fact of the regenerating power of the spirit the latter is achieved by the agency of the word of truth that the ones said to be begotten are first fruits can be pressed no further than that they were first in order among the vast company of the redeemed belonging to the church which no man can number for they were a kind of first fruits it evidently recognizes the truth of Christ alone being the first fruit, strictly speaking. Revelation 14, God saves those who are in Christ, the Lamb of God. And we read in Revelation 14, 4, These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. So then the work of God in saving sinners produces a soteriological first fruit. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, we read of the church as the firstborn of those who are enrolled in heaven. We read that at the beginning of, of our worship service too. In Revelation 3, 5, we read of the Lamb's book of life. There's names in it. They're enrolled. Like some of you young people, you go to college and you sign up for a class and you see your name in it. You're enrolled. You're, you're in something important. You, you, you graduate and you get a diploma and it's got your name on it. You go, yeah, yeah, that's important. Look, there's a book that has your name in it. You've been enrolled in something to be a first fruit of God. You've got to move quickly. I've got to land this plane. The next point on your outline is the saints. In addition to it being a picture of the church, the language of first fruits is used figuratively to be applied to Israel as the first fruits. Israel said to be the first fruits. In the program of God, God's up to something in Israel and the church. He's making one people for himself, and both are referenced as these harvests. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 3, I'll put that in front of you. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. The first of his harvest. A moment ago, I quoted Revelation 14. That, that section, we see God sealing a, a, a Jewish people in the end times. 144,000, in fact, we read about. And those are the ones who are following the Lamb. It's uh, 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 it's a revival, just like what Paul talked about in Romans 9 through 11. In Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14, we have these references to God saving from his people, his first fruits Israel, uh, saving a people for himself. It's absolutely incredible language. There you see Revelation 14. And the point here is that future Israel is saved and sealed as end times first fruits. Now the final point on the outline brings us to the end times and it is the return of Jesus. It is the return of Jesus. Christ is going to come back and he will usher in all the eschatological first fruits and resurrection. All the shadows that we saw uh, in the law of Moses, he's going to bring all that to fruition. And he's going to glorify his people. The final metamorphosis is going to take place. You have references there in the parentheses on your outline. You see Colossians chapter 3. Let me put it in front of you. When Christ, our life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. That work that he's doing inside of you, transforming you. I wish it was faster. I wish it was faster, but he's doing something. I see he's changing me. He makes me aware of where I'm dropping the ball. 
He reminds me that He's done it all, that He's my sacrifice. There's nothing I can do to, to, to merit salvation. There's nothing I can do to make Him love me less. There's nothing I can do to make Him love me more. It is by grace. I didn't have it coming. But His grace, that resurrection power, is doing something inside of me. By golly, I'm not the same guy that, that I was 20 years ago, or 10 years ago, five years ago. And I don't want to be the same guy when I stand before you next week and preach His Word. I want to be renewed. I want to know that power of resurrection because it proclaims to the world what is to come. The first fruits show everyone. You taste it and you go, the whole crop's going to be amazing. You taste that avocado? Oh, man, we're going to have guacamole parties. It's going to be glorious. And so, too, when the unbeliever sees the believer, they should look at us and go, maybe there's something to this one who's going to come back and raise the dead because I see something in them that I can't otherwise explain. Romans chapter 8 those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God's making us like the son. And when you're in the son and you have life in the son, you become renewed more and more to be like him. First John chapter 3, verse 2, look at this. Beloved, we are children of God, and it hasn't appeared as yet what we will be, but we know when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see Him just as He is. There's a transformation. There's a beauty in this, this great first fruits imagery. And so what I wanted to do today on the heels of Easter was to make sure our people really, really, really got this. And I'll close with a quote from Dr. Schaefer again. With His glorified human body, Christ appeared in heaven immediately after the resurrection. His appearance in the realm above became a representation of the vast harvest of those who are to follow in glorified bodies, like His resurrection uh, in glory. None of His people who have died are yet in possession of their resurrection bodies. The acquiring of the body awaits the coming of Christ. Christ, as the one glorified in His resurrection human body, is the antitype of the Old Testament wave sheaf. As an earnest a foretaste of that which awaits the child of God in glory, the blessings which are now realized by the believer because of the presence of the Spirit in his heart constitutes what is called the first fruits. And so we are going to sing. We are going to have communion. We close our, our service responding to the word that has been preached. You've been reminded today who God is. You've been reminded of what God has done. Hopefully you've been reminded in that process that you fall short. And, and, and hopefully, you can humbly accept that, that you fall short. And you can humbly accept that what you deserve is punishment and death. And then you can hear the good news that he has come to deliver you and redeem you from that, to purchase you out of the slavery to sin. So that as we come to the table, we're coming in repentance and faith. We're coming and we're seeking him, that he would create a clean heart in us. We're coming to seek His forgiveness, to, to rejoice in the mercy that He has given. And we sing to Him because He alone is worthy of our praise. And we respond in giving. We, we give and we serve and we go into the world and we see the weak and we, we bless them and we reach out to them. And we proclaim the good tidings of the one who has come. Look at how sweet His resurrection was. Just imagine what the crop is going to taste like. 
And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, the sweetness of what the Savior has done will be seen in its fullness and we'll be like him. Let's seek him, let's pray, let's sing, church. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. And that in his resurrection, he would become the first fruit for us. Uh, Lord, we, we, we by ourselves are a, a, a harvest that deserves to be burned. We, like the fig tree in, 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 in Jerusalem, we're not bearing fruit. We deserve to be cursed. We deserve to be composted. And yet you, you saw fit, the great green thumb that you are, to bring life into us and to produce a harvest. That it wasn't our doing, it was all yours. And so all glory belongs to you. Lord, we come now and we confess our sins, for they are many. We confess that we are prone to wander and we so desperately need you. We come to the communion table and we uh, drink of the fruit of the vine, being reminded of these images that we have been taught this day. Lord, may these images and, and this lesson bear fruit in us. For the sake of Christ and his church, in his name we pray. Amen.